0: The first thing people need to understand is that general counsels do not necessarily know the ins and outs of campaign finance law.
1: Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm Michaela Isler, NAPAC's executive director, and I'm joined by David Schild, Adam Belmar, and special guest Carol Laham
2: for another episode of Sweet Talk. Being a successful PAC professional means you need a good understanding of the law. And when it comes to money in politics, there's a great deal to understand. From
3: acts of Congress more than 50 years old to FEC opinions and Supreme Court rulings of the last decade, that landscape is vast.
1: You know, and often our PAC professionals do have a partner on this journey. Your organization's head lawyer, the general counsel. Today's Sweet Talk episode is really a dramatic imagination of scenarios where PAC directors might find counsel's office in their inbox.
3: The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAP activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Access Marketing Services. Access. From design to podcasts, from infographics to digital, work with the team that leading PACs and government affairs programs call when they need results. Access Marketing Services.
1: Thanks, Adam. And as always, thanks to Access Marketing. I'm excited, Adam, because we released our annual conference registration materials this week and all designed by Access Marketing.
3: Absolutely. They do the most fantastic work. They are great professionals. And I don't know what we'd do without them, Michaela.
1: Well, this episode of Sweet Talk, David, we're going to imagine possible interactions with an organization's general counsel.
2: Exactly, Michaela. I knew we'd be talking about the law today. I binge watched the first season of Ally McBeal. I'm ready to go. But what follows is nothing more than a training exercise, right? This is speculation for the purpose of preparation. Just imagine you're a corporate PAC director. You're sitting at your desk one afternoon when the following email hits your inbox. Dear PAC director.
3: This language in the PAC brochure concerns me it's saying that we support candidates who share our business interests and legislative priorities. We can't make it seem like we're bribing members of Congress with employee money. I'll need you to make some changes and resubmit for approval
2: you know Michaela i I, I see this criticism and it, it hits a little close to home. It seems very familiar, and I think you know it stems from a place of you know, uh, a very literal sort of reading of of the law and obviously a natural risk aversion that you see in general counsel's offices. But of course, we know what is and is not permissible In the language that we use in PAC solicitations. And of course, we're not bribing members of Congress. There's no quid pro quo. We're supporting candidates who share our business interests. That's widely deployed language. It's widely accepted. You have to be careful, of course, when you write this stuff. But I think that sometimes there's sort of a knee jerk reaction from folks who say, hey, it's my job to protect the organization. And I'm connecting something in my head based on what you wrote that feels risky, that feels like it might, you know, damage our reputation or or put us in a bind. So this is a place where, you know, maybe you're outside counsel, somebody like Carol could be particularly helpful, but I don't think this is an uncommon concern. It's one you can address.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is exactly why we brought in Carol Leham. I'd love, Carol, for you to jump in here.
0: The first thing people need to understand is that general counsels do not necessarily know the ins and outs of campaign finance law. So Really, you have to educate them and you should take it from the position of you're the you're the expert, you need to tell them, here's what the law says and here's how it works. So in this case, you need to explain that there's a difference between saying that you support a candidate because of their vote on specific legislation, which would be a problem and have a PAC policy that the candidate's general support of issues important to the company is one of the criteria that the PAC examines to determine if a candidate will receive PAC support. So you can't tell a candidate that you're contributing to them as a thank you. Your general counsel would be correct about that, but you can tell them that you appreciate the fact that they understand the issues of importance to the company and the language that you've presented here is completely consistent with what's permissible in the law. Carol, this is exactly why
1: we wanted you on this episode today. Uh just the nuance in, you know, how you say this and and what's written is so so important. And I think sometimes too as pack directors, just being able to have uh someone at their fingertips on the outside like you either through the NAPAC help hotline or as outside counsel uh is just what it takes to convey to the senior leadership what what we can and can't do okay so let's try this one on for size the email from the general counsel comes in dear PAC director
3: I need to see the entire PAC team immediately I got a call from one of our business presidents who said he found his name and home address on the internet because of the PAC I don't know what's going on down there but we need to get a handle on this
2: so this one feels very familiar as well. Uh, and, you know, it can be an unpleasant conversation when you have to acquaint people with uh, the realities of political disclosure. Right. We all know that over uh, two hundred dollars in uh, aggregate contributions and your name, occupation and address are going to be reported to the Federal Election Commission. It's one of the ways that uh, the courts and the government have directed sunshine onto our political contribution process. And of course, it's a little bit of a wake up call. If the PAC is the first way you're making a political contribution and then all of a sudden in in the age of of the Internet, and the age of immediate accessibility, you find your name and your home address uh, out there as a result of a Google search. It can be a little off putting, but it's a compliance issue. Right. So I would start with this conversation. We're required to do this. Federal law requires us to meet this standard and we're going to do it. And the second thing would be if someone is very much concerned and needs to protect this information, um, you know, there are a number of ways to address that, one of which, of course, being maybe you want to give $199 a year, right? Not to not to gain the system, but I've certainly had people who have tried to do that. Uh, and then Carol can maybe talk about some of the other things about addressing and, and things of that nature. Um, but it's a legitimate concern, right? And I wouldn't downplay people's thoughts of, hey, my personal information is out there. I would simply say you're in the same boat as literally millions of other Americans who've chosen to get involved in the political process. It's not unique to our organization. It's not a failure uh, to monitor your personal information.
0: But there are some nice solutions, David. And the, the best solution really is that the FEC doesn't require you to disclose the personal home address of the individual. So you are allowed to disclose the business address for the individual as opposed to their home address. Um, and many paths choose to do so. Um, now, that's not going to change the fact that that person's information is out there already, but it is something that a lot of PACs have moved to, you know, so that they're disclosing the business address of the of the contributors. Because The truth is, I mean, you want them to contribute more than $200 if they can do so. So if there's a way for you to figure out, you know, how to disclose without having their home address on the internet, that's the easiest way to do it. Yeah, this was
1: one of the number one questions I would get. And honestly, I think, you know, you can't shy away from this. I almost led with this in my conversations with employees, wanted to be fully transparent uh, about the about the rules of the road. And so um, and I do think, Carol, we've been getting actually a lot of questions to the Legal Help Hotline. On this topic and knowing that you can give the work address, I think, is a good solution.
2: Yeah. Thanks to the software platforms that are out there now, you're probably collecting both of these addresses anyway. And it's just a matter of checking a box when you generate that FEC report to switch that information over and maybe give everybody a sense of uh, peace.
0: Well, when you're a separate segregated fund, especially of a corporation, you know what their work address is. You don't even need to collect it. So you can just put that into the report. It's harder I will admit that for a trade association, right, because they don't necessarily know the work address of the individuals from their corporate entities that are giving to them. So they should they should request that information and report it that way.
2: All right. Here is another good one from the general counsel. And this Monday morning firecracker is something that uh, it feels familiar and we should all be on the lookout for. Dear pack director,
3: what the heck is an RFAI? I come in after a holiday weekend and I find a letter from the government on my desk. Just how much trouble are we in and what went wrong here?
1: Oh, David, this is certainly one of those emails that I would not want to get from my general counsel or anyone in senior leadership. And I think this kind of goes back to what we've talked about on every episode is that sort of prepping and education and, you know, awareness to our leadership that we could get a request for additional information that, you know, this is not certainly uncommon, but I think, Carol, we'd love to get your take on this one.
0: It's a little hard to tell them to take a breath, but you do want to take tell them to take a breath because a request for additional information, RFAI, doesn't mean you're in trouble. All it means is that the analyst who's reviewing your PATH reports wants some additional information. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to answer the question. So it gives you an opportunity to explain something that's not obvious on the face of a a report. Or frankly, um, the truth of the matter is, you know, analysts have a handbook, right? And their handbook tells them, hey, if you see X on a report, you need to send a request for additional information about it. So they're just doing their job. And your response is, okay, okay. Here's the answer to X. And then it's the end of the story. If you don't have a good answer, then you might have a problem. But if you have a good answer, you know, it's going to go on the public record what your answer is. And the analysts will move on.
2: Yeah, Michaela, the first time that I I got one of these, I actually had to let the GC's office know, right, because it's addressed to your treasurer, who is my boss, the SVP of government affairs. And it was, you know, again, it was just a normal procedural error in the background where I think we had misdesignated a contribution and they caught it and we came up with an internal process to fix it. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but certainly when that when that envelope that says Federal Election Commission shows up, right? We're all planning our backup career as baristas at that moment because we think, OK, you know, this is this is the target letter from Jack Smith, right? It's time to bail out. We're not having a good week. Um, but. Yeah, I think Carol, you would agree. You know, it's not uncommon this happens, especially in larger packs that are you know dealing with hundreds of perhaps state, federal, and local candidates. You know, there are going to be some some procedural and, and well, let's say bookkeeping you know errors that occur not out of malfeasance or intention, just because somebody clicks the wrong box when they're clicking 300 boxes a month, and the FEC catches it, you make an adjustment to your process, uh, and you move forward. We always did have an answer, and I will just say this for our listeners. I did always contact our outside counsel and say, okay, this is the response that we're preparing. Is this in line? Is this, you know, problem identified, problem solved, response prepared? Let's get a, a experienced set of political law eyes to look over that re- exp- response. And then we move back to the business of running the pack.
1: Yeah, and I think I just want to reiterate what Carol said. I think it's incumbent upon the pack directors to remain calm and get all the facts, as Carol said, and be the calming presence with your, your senior leadership because Um, they're looking to you to make sure that everything's okay. Um, So great advice, both of you. Okay, David, here's one more scenario to think through. Dear Pack manager.
3: I understand you're trying to start some sort of matching gift program connected to the pack. I've been through the FEC guide and I can't see any language that would allow this. It's a creative idea for sure, but I'm afraid we just can't take the chance.
2: I love this one because, you know, now we get into somebody who has the uh, FEC guide for campaigns and elections sitting on their desk and they're looking through the index for matching gift and they don't find it and they think, okay it's a harebrained idea from the PAC director. But in fact... There is a provision for new ideas and new initiatives in the PAC world, right? It's called an advisory opinion. And um, of course, we have those. I think it was Whirlpool back in the day who first thought up a matching gift program. And now we all sort of use that language, right? One advisory opinion, and Carol will correct me if I'm wrong here, sort of is the law of the land for everybody that wants to follow in terms of that practice. And so someone else may have had a good idea. They went to the Federal Election Commission and asked for uh, an advisory opinion that would allow them to do it, or perhaps they were disallowed. And now you you can cite that and say, look, the government has weighed in. The the relevant body has said this is permissible. No, you're not going to find it in, in FECA, right? You're not going to find it in McConnell FEC. It's, it's right here in this other you know body of law, for lack of a better description. Carol, am I saying this right, Carol?
0: You are basically saying it right. So ba- what the FEC has done is they've approved, through advisory opinions, these charitable matches as either an administrative or a solicitation cost to the pack. And there, that language is in the statute, you know, that a corporation and a trade association can pay for the administrative and a solicitation cost of the PAC. So you are right. Somebody went to the FEC years ago and said, can we do a PAC match as a administrator for solicitation costs? And the FEC said, yes. Uh, um, in that case, it was a one-to-one match. So, and there have been other several advisory opinions since then that have sort of tried to figure out how broadly we can go on that. Um, So in terms of talking to your general counsel, you know, as long as your PAC match is not materially indistinguishable from what the FEC has approved before or materially distinguishable, excuse me. So you have to do what they in the four corners of those advisory opinions have approved, and as long as you're doing that, um, you're not taking any chance by having a pack match. Um, in fact, I, interestingly enough, pack matches are proven as a way of uh, enhancing the pack, and it's a really great way of getting more people to contribute to the pack because they get a twofer; they're giving money to the pack, and at the same time, the company. On their behalf, pretty much, is giving money to a charity that they're interested in giving to. So they're doubling their money, but they're only making one contribution. Carol, you at the top of the show talked
1: about rightfully that a lot of general counsels, especially in-house, don't really have a strong grasp on campaign finance election law. And And we run into this all the time. If, you know, of course, our members can reach out to you as part of the Legal Help Hotline. Can you talk through kind of how you would recommend folks handle a situation like this if they don't have outside counsel to sort of counter what the general counsel is saying?
0: Well, in this particular situation, I think it's pretty easy. I mean, they can go to the FEC advisory opinions and they can find the advisory opinions that permit these charitable matches and say to the general counsel, you know, we're not taking a chance at all. And as you can see, This company asked for an advisory opinion about charitable matches and the FEC approved it. Here's the approval letter from the FEC. And all we're trying to do is the exact same thing that this other company has already been approved to do. And as a matter of law, as long as we're doing the same thing that they're doing, we're going to be protected by that advisory opinion.
1: I think this also goes to the importance of that relationship with your analyst's would you say? I mean, you know, being able to have someone over at the FEC to call and talk to about these kinds of issues.
0: Well, I think the analyst is useful for the request for additional information for sure. I mean, they're often going to tell you how, what response they're looking for, to be honest with you. And sometimes they'll even sort of write it for you say X, Y, and Z. And this is what I'm looking for. And you're, and as long as you do that, you know, you'll have satisfied the requirements for the. For the request for additional information, in terms of legal advice, the analysts are not really going to tell you, "Oh, yeah, path match is okay." It's not okay. But um, they might point you to the advisory opinion. They might. They might if they know it. You know, they're they have really a narrow vision, which is the your FEC reports, and they want to make sure that you're following the the rules. Um, and back to what David said, one of the you know very common things that an analyst will look at is, uh, have you, you know, exceeded a limit to a candidate because you mistakenly hit the, uh, you know, general as opposed to primary or primary as opposed to general. So it's those kinds of things that the analysts are looking for or, you know, other sort of obvious things, you know, somebody's year to date number is more than $5,000 because they had payroll deduction. And then they also decided to write you a check and it bounced up the number. And, you know, you're, you're going to put this in a system and the system's going to pop out a number, right? And it's going to say, oh, hey, that person's given $5,500. And so the analyst is going to write you about that. And, you know, maybe you didn't notice it and you're going to then refund that person the $500. It's, it's things like that, that the analysts are looking at.
2: And Mikhail, I'm so glad you mentioned relationships because one of the, The the relationships that's so important here is between you, your general counsel and your outside counsel, as as Carol has said, you know, your GC is not there because they are an expert on election law, but your outside counsel is you as the PAC director have to be you know, the I didn't go to law school, but I do understand this well enough to keep us out of trouble. And I understand enough when to ask for help. That was what uh, sorry, I always tried to intimate in in my previous roles was when I get ahead of my skis, when I get outside my my area of expertise, there's a number I can pick up to call. And then I'm going to conference you the GC's office in and we're going to have this discussion about the way forward so that everybody feels confident. I think you want to maintain this sense of we're out here operating in a safe place. You don't need to constantly have your eyes on us. There's there's an external expert. If we need one, there's an internal level of competency and I'm going to keep you in the loop. And if those conversations are happening, I think there's going to be a sense of, hey, risk mitigated when it comes to this political action committee.
1: Well, I, for one, was happy to know that I had outside counsel to help guide through all of these challenging situations.
3: And scene. I tell you what, I love this one the most. Maybe it's because I like green eggs and Carol, Ham, but really because she is always Teaching me something new God bless you Carol Thank you for
2: joining us On this episode You are very welcome uh, Look it's just I, I'm i Any conversation I have with, with an attorney Where I'm not talking about Bail money is a good one So you know This is This is a, a great opportunity I think for our listeners Who probably face these Concerns every day Nobody's better than Carol At this That's why we're so lucky To have her On the NABPAC team And um, you know While it's the sort of Doldrums of summer There's no time Not to be thinking About these kind of Compliance issues And the relationships You need to stay of
1: them. Absolutely. Well, special thanks to you, David of Three River Strategies and Carol Laham, partner at Wiley Rhine for being back with us again today. Great to be here. Thanks, everybody. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing this podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week.